0: You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. I like going to movies. Anybody here like going to movies? Woo-hoo. I like the movie experience. I like the theater experience. You guys like, you're done with the whole movie thing. Not me. I like the seats. I like walking. In. I like the lobby. And one of my favorite parts of going to the movies are the trailers. You know, the coming attractions, movies that are coming. It's like I want to get there early. That's part of the movie experience. I mean, that's what I really think of to use. The movies I want to see. Now they're called trailers, even though they're the front of the movie, because back in the day, uh, in the 40s and 50s, and when the movies were really becoming a popular movement, in the United States, they would put the the coming next movies after the movie, and so they would trail the movie with what's coming next. Now, eventually they moved the trailers to the front of the movie. And these still are called trailers. So we call them trailers, but that's kind of the little story about the back of them. And the point of these trailers is they're a coming attraction preview, right? They're like, this is what movie's coming out. This is what's coming out next fall, next summer, you know, in two weeks or whatever dress part's coming out. Woo! I'm excited about that. That's one of those you have to see in the big screen in a the movie theater with really good sound. These like shapes the seats. Have uh, you ever watched a trailer, you feel like you've already seen the movie. I get so frustrated when right? I see a comedy trailer, I'm like, that's all the funny I'm pretty sure. You know, sometimes you see a comedy, and then you go see the movie after you see the trailer, rather. And then you see the movie, and you're like, oh, man, it's like all the funny stuff. There's like no surprises, nothing interesting. All the action scenes are done, where every plot twist is revealed in the trailer. I'm like, I'm not sure why sometimes they do that, but sometimes the trailers give away too much. The best trailers are the ones that leave you guessing. Okay. The ones that are like, man, that's so interesting, so intriguing. I want to know more, and so they get you there to see, to come back. Well, we're going to talk about the coming attraction and the coming attractions that point to the coming attraction. We're talking about Jesus in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is all about Jesus, from Genesis to Malachi, every book is Every prophet, every story, every message in the Old Testament is a coming attraction. It is a preview of the main attraction, the life of Jesus. And what we're going to do as we look through the Old Testament, we're going to look at the hints, the teasers, and the scenes that come out in the Old Testament. Now, you guys ever heard of the phrase, uh Light bulb, right? Like you maybe you've seen a despicable man, who's seen a despicable Me meme or minions? One, two, or three. Who's been living under a rock over the last ten years? So? Alright, well a despicable Me. Uh, it's an old phrase, light bulb. Basically that means aha, I got it. A moment of clarification and a bright idea, you know, and the idea of the light bulb moment is that when you feel like you're lost or confused, all of a sudden light bulb an idea. The eyes are open. And what we're going to look at today are a couple of people, a couple of disciples who had a very real light bulb moment as they walked with Jesus, as Jesus says to them that the entire Old Testament is a preview of his life. We're going to pick it up right in Luke chapter 24, an amazing light bulb moment. In uh, verse 13, it says, Now, that same day. Now, let's put the brakes there for a second to kind of give you an idea what that day is. On that day, well, that's the day that two women came to prep a dead body that had been dead for three days, but when they got there, the body was gone. Uh, and and there was some, some angels there, some spirits there, and the word had got out that the tomb of Jesus who had been crucified was empty and the body was missing. Now, on that day, Life, history, everything was altered. Time was altered. Christian or not, on that day, the world changed. So he said, on that same day, the day the world changed, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. These are two disciples who knew Jesus, walked with Jesus, hung out with Jesus. These are two people that knew Jesus most of his life, were there in the upper room when Jesus had his last meal. They're not uh, of the 12 uh, disciples that are mentioned by name as the main 12 that Jesus uh, declared as apostles. Uh, But these are two disciples that were with Jesus and had been with him for a long time. The body had been missing. They had heard the news that he uh, was gone and they were talking about it. And it says, verse 15, they were uh, 14. They were talking with each other about everything that happened. Um, I mean, they didn't know Jesus. They saw the miracles. Now he's gone. As they walked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus, I love this. As they were walking, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside them. But they were kept from recognizing him. So we don't know why they couldn't recognize who Jesus was. Maybe the son was behind Jesus. Maybe he was wearing a cloak like some mysterious Jedi or something. Or maybe they were just looking ahead never really paying attention, talking to each other, overwhelmed by their depression, and uh, they were just so upset. And so Jesus asked them. They, they're just walking, and he just kind of joins the two of them. And as they're walking, he said, What are you guys discussing together as you walk along? He's like, What's up? What are you guys talking about? So much I love it. And they stood. It's like they stopped. They stood in their tracks, faces downcast. The there was this utter sense of loss and hopelessness, sad, confused. The rumors were, were swirling. They didn't know what to believe. Maybe you've been at that place too. Maybe you heard the sermons, heard the messages, prayed the prayers. Maybe you believed for the best and trusted God for the best, and then chaos broke out. Uh, and your prayers began to be questioned. Uh, you are dazed. You're confused. You're disappointed. And it seems like God didn't come through. They're, they're distraught. Jesus is like, hey, what are you talking about? And they stood there, faces down. One of them named Cleopas said something first. Now, a little footnote to the story. Cleopas is a really interesting character in the Bible. He's mentioned Twice. Uh, and he's mentioned in the crucifixion of Jesus. Where? Well, there were three ladies that were at the crucifixion of Jesus, and then John, one of the disciples. And one of those ladies was named Mary, wife of Cleopas. Now, within the first hundred years of the early church, they identified who Cleopas was in the early church as the uncle of Jesus. He was the brother of Joseph. The person who fathered Jesus in this life—he was—he uh, was born of a virgin. Jesus was, and Mary was his mother. But he had an earthly father that he was uh, um, given to the care of. His name was Joseph, and then he disappears in the Bible story. Well, Cleopas is believed by all of the early church to be the brother of Joseph. So Jesus isn't just showing up to a couple of random disciples. Some who believe that the other disciple that is with Cleopas, it doesn't say if it's male or female, that it might actually be his wife, the other Mary. And then possibly Jesus is like, hey, aunt and uncle, what's up? What are you guys talking about? He drops in this scenario. So one of them named Cleopas asks him, have you been to Iraq? He says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? Are you only a visitor to where you've been? This is the biggest news in town, he says. He says, and you don't know things that have happened here these last few days. And Jesus, playing along, I love Jesus, is like, what things? I love, it. I love how Jesus is like messing up everything. Like, what are you talking about, man? And uh, about Jesus of Nazareth, they reply. I can see Jesus kind of smirking. I don't know. So this is what they said, though. They go, Jesus of Nazareth, because there's more than one Jesus. The one from Nazareth. He says he was a prophet, powerful in word indeed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and the other rulers him over to be sentenced to death, but they crucified him. Now what's interesting here is that this is potentially two family members of Jesus who still up to this point only saw Jesus as a prophet. They only saw him as as the Messiah, the promised one, but just still a man. Just a man. It's a man was... But to death, they crucified him. Verse but we know that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They knew he was the Messiah. They thought he was. And they were ready for change. But then they killed him along with all our dreams. Don't you realize how devastating this is? And what is more? He says, it's the third day since this took place. he has been dead three days. So this is, this is not new news. This has been circulating now for three days. And in addition... Some of our women have amazed us. What does that mean? Now, if you read the gospel accounts of the resurrection, there were some women that went to the tomb to prepare Jesus' birth. Uh, I'm sorry, not birth, but his his death. He had already been dead uh, three days, um, two nights, three days. And they were going to finish what they didn't complete on Friday before the Sabbath. And that is to anoint his body and to prepare him for burial. But when they got there, he was gone. And two angels showed up and said, "He he's risen just as he said. So the Bible says these women ran out of there and told the disciples that he was alive. A little bit later on, Mary goes back by herself and sees Jesus. But this is before that happened. These two guys, or these two disciples, possibly a man and a woman, they were in that room with the When the women came back to that huddle of the disciples. And they said, he's alive. And so he says, not only has it been three days, but in addition, some women are telling us some crazy stories about him being alive. That they saw a vision, that they saw angels. He says, they went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find the body. They came and told us what they had seen. A vision of angels who said he was alive. Then, some of our companions who the other gospels identify as John and Peter went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. So they're basically saying, we don't know what to think. And yeah, the women are saying that he's alive and they saw visions of angels, but I don't know if that's reliable. The two other disciples went, Peter and John, and the body's gone. That maybe he was stolen. they don't know what to think. But what's funny is that they're telling this to Jesus, the guy who not only knows the story, but the story's about him. He's the main character. He's the one they're referring to. He's the one they're talking to. Jesus is listening while they're doing all the talking. Maybe you had a hope that Jesus was going to change your marriage. Maybe you had prayed to Jesus that he would change your family, that he would fix or work and move in your finances or that your situation would somehow be turned around. Maybe you had hope, but now you're looking at your situation and you're disappointed. And you're wondering, God, where have you been? But the ironic part of this whole story is that they're worried, they're frustrated, they're confused, they're disappointed, and they're complaining about what God's not doing to Jesus. They were talking about how they felt Jesus, let them down, and they didn't even realize that Jesus was with them at that moment. Three questions surface out of this conversation with these two disciples. And the first one is this. Jesus is asking them, "Do you really know who I am? Do you know who I am?" And He says, "You have the info. You've had experiences with me, and you know about me. You've walked with me, seen miracles. You think I'm a great man of God, but do you really know who I am?" He says to these guys, or guy yeah, one, verse twenty-five. He said to them, "How foolish you are!" He says, "You're part of the story." He do not get it. He says and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. It says, did not the Christ have to suffer these things, then enter into glory, and beginning with Moses, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, known as the Torah, and the prophets, which are prophets such as Nehemiah, Habakkuk, uh, Isaiah, uh, Old Testament books that have names, those are prophets. So beginning with the Torah and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He says, let me tell you something. You don't know who I really am. I've been around longer than you realize. You cross and your grave you can't hold me down. Most of us, when we think about Jesus, we think of a man. We think 2,000 years ago. But Jesus is like, it's long before that. Let me take you back. Let me go back to the very beginning. I'm going to tell you about how I am. Right there. See the big question of this series that we're going to do in the next month or two is that how well do we you know Jesus? That's the whole point of this series. He was telling them you have a small Jesus. See the Old Testament gives us this bright neon sign that says this way, this way, this way, this way, this way. When you get to the life of Jesus, there's a neon sign over him saying arrive, arrive, arrive. You are here. You have made it. This is it. The entire old. Testament Is a sign That says the way to Jesus Is that way And all through the Old Testament There are these declarations of who God is And when Jesus shows up He uses all the same phrases To talk about himself Jesus called himself the Alpha And Omega That is the ever eternal past And the ever eternal future That is a phrase given to only God Jesus says that's me Jesus calls himself the giver of life. These are all names given to only God in the Old Testament. Jesus says, I am the giver of life. I am the judge of the living and the dead. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the life of life. Jesus says, I am the bridegroom. I am the forgiver of sins. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He even calls himself the great I am. He says, that's me. Do you know who I am? He says, you know, the coming attraction. Do you realize? I was there. Verse 28 As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. Alright, so here's the deal. Seven mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Several hours. Walking at a pace that's normal, discussing. Jesus is starting with Genesis and the prophets, saying, All those previews, it's about me. They get to their destination, and Jesus, I love this, pulling their leg, pretends to keep going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly the evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. I can imagine Jesus. He's pretending to walk forward, wait for it. Hey, Jesus! Or, hey, you stranger. There it is. And he's like, he knew he was going to be asked back. Then it gets real crazy in verse 30. It says, So when he went and he sat at the table with them. Now let me explain this a little bit. They didn't just go in and sit down and eat, they went in. They maybe they, they had a few conversations about their environment. They put their things up. They prepared a meal. They, they prepared for a present guest. It could have been a half an hour, an hour after they arrived back at their house. So everything's set. They're getting it all ready. Hey, make yourself at home, stranger, and just kind of hang, hang, hang over there. They put a meal together. They sit down at the meal. So that so when he sat at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, began to give it to them. All of a sudden, whoa, wait a minute. This is like deja vu. This goes back like three nights ago to the moment when we were sitting with this Messiah that we're talking about and he broke this bread and he blessed it and he gave it to us. And then all of a sudden, when he gave it to them, their eyes were open and they recognized him. I said, whoa, wait a minute. It, it's you. It was you all along. I don't know what it was. Maybe maybe he took his Jedi cloak off. Maybe he broke it and as he reached it out they saw the, the scars in his in his hands, or, or maybe they were just so clouded by depression that they couldn't see Jesus was there all along, and it wasn't until they went back to that precious moment of, of God, of breaking bread and fellowship, and of that moment of the Lord's Supper in their mind, that they saw it, I love this, and all of a sudden, it was a, a light bulb moment, he broke the bread, he gave it to them, and all of a sudden boom! It's <laughs> you! And here's where it gets really interesting, Jesus is like yeah, poof, disappears. The Bible says, they immediately recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. See, they were so caught up in their sorrow that they missed that Jesus was there all along. And we do the same thing. Jesus is saying, hey, bonehead, I'm right here. Don't get so frustrated and upset and negative about what's going on in your life. Don't read the news so darkly that you feel everything is lost. I'm right here with you, open your eyes I'm right here It's pretty neat though Poof, I can see He holds the bread and, Poof, the bread drops to the table I say, He's gone No way And they asked each other Were not our hearts burning within us while we walked with us on the road As he opened the scriptures to us When they began to understand the previews Their hearts began burn." And they began to get fired up inside. You see, when we get a bigger view of Jesus, and we begin to understand who He really is, it fires up our heart, it stirs faith and hope, and gets us excited to where we can't hide. You know, it's like that, that understanding of that depth of who He is. It says, verse 33, they got up and they returned at once. If I say it once, they walked slowly seven miles to Emmaus. But then they ran back seven miles to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, and those with them assembled together and saying, It's true! The Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Now, interesting thing about that Simon, talk about Peter, Corinthians, and this passage references an encounter where Jesus appears to Peter, but it's not recorded about what happened. It's mentioned twice, but we don't know what happened at that moment when they were visiting. It's not recorded. So he says, it's true. Peter said that he saw him. It's true. The women said they saw uh, the tomb empty. And the deity said he was alive. It's true. It's true, guys. We saw him. We walked with him. He revealed the scriptures to us. He explained to us all those coming attractions. It was all about him all along. Then the two told what had happened on the way. And how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And it's interesting if you read the rest of that story. As they're talking, Jesus walks through the wall and says, Hey, what's up, everybody? (laughs) As they're talking, wonderful, amazing story. So Jesus is not only asking, Do you think I am? He's also asking us, he asked them, Do you realize where I've been? Do you know where I've been? Jesus is not talking about the 33 years that he knew of them, but further back, Jesus took them all the way to the beginning. See, the Old Testament is the story of Jesus. It is the coming attraction preview. It is His story. History is His story. It's a glimpse of what was to come. So let's start where Jesus might have started. In Genesis, chapter 1. Uh, chapter one says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I just want to give you an idea of what that word God there is. It's the word Elohim. Remember that because we're going to come back to that in a second. The word El, what if say El? The word El is a generic ancient word for God. Just like today we use the word God and all kinds of religions use the word God. Obviously, when I say God and uh, some other religion or some other group says God, it may not be the same definition, right? But we're still using the same word God. Well, in the ancients, they had the same word El. And that was a reference to deity or God. And depending on the background of that particular group, they can find that word differently. But here at this moment, the Bible uses the word, uh, the writer, which is Moses, writes, and uses the word Elohim, which is interesting. Um, see, what science says was a big bang was actually the bang of the voice of God. Genesis one we we're going to take a look at that word a little bit closer. Uh, says then God Elohim, which by the way, L means God, Elohim means plurality of being. Now this is a confusing part of the Bible because you think, well, the Bible is very clear. There is one God, one God over and over again. Says the Lord God is one, and there is no other. There's only one God, one God. It's known as the Shema. Here it's the Lord our God is. One over and over, but yet one of the most profound words for God in the Bible is Elohim, which is God plurality. And just so you know, the next word is significant. It says, "And the Lord God, and God Elohim, said." Anybody who speaks Spanish? Okay. Anybody? Uh, some of you guys don't speak Spanish. raise your anybody who speaks Spanish. All right, thank you. Those of you who speak Spanish, I took Spanish in school two years. I remember this is my pen, this is my pencil, and I remember sitting down and shut up because that's seems I called the teacher. said, because so I remember those words, but I struggled with conjugating the verbs. Anybody here know what conjugating the verbs is? It means you have an object of the discussion and the verb that's attached to that person or a group of people is different. You have to conjugate the verb to match who they're talking about. For instance, a singular person, the verb is slightly different than for a plurality of people or a group. Here's what's interesting about this word. Elohim. plurality being said, a singular verb. This is pretty big. It's saying that there is this multidimensional plurality of God who is one said this. It said, let us, plural, make men in our image and in our likeness. Now, he's not talking about any angels like this because angels cannot create themselves. This is a singular God who is a plural pronoun. This is a mystery. Jesus is saying, hey guys, guess what? That's me. I was there. That's a preview. That was me. You see, the Old Testament gives us glimpses of what we now call the Trinity Jesus defining. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. It's a mystery of there is one God who is three persons but one God. The Bible is uh, very very specific about this. It doesn't explain how it just says it is. And Jesus says, hey guys, that made make man in our image, that's me. That's that's me the tree talking. Verse 3 14, many of you guys know the story Adam and Eve were created. God said don't eat the tree over there. This tree of knowledge. Don't eat it. It's bad for you. It'll be dangerous for you. Uh, but you can do anything else you want. But they were enticed and led astray by deception as the enemy, a Satan disguised himself as a serpent and led them and lied to them and deceived them. And they took of this forbidden fruit, and their eyes were opened to the knowledge of good and evil. And so this is what happened in verse 314. God shows up and he begins to curse the serpent that lied to them. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this. Cursed are you above all animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And her seed, or her offspring, it says, will crush your head. He, her offspring, will crush your head. Now, I want you to know something. Women, you need men to have babies. Men, you need women to have babies. Uh, we, women don't have the ability to end up in and of themselves. They don't have seed or offspring apart from man. But this is what this, this is what the Lord says. He says, there's going to be a woman who will independent from a man give birth to another man. This is a miracle. He says, and this woman is going to confront the serpent. And it says, and this serpent, he says, will strike or bite. Your heel will bruise your heel and bite you. He will infect you with poison. It says, however, he, this this man born apart from man, but of a woman. It says, he will crush your head. The serpent will attack and it will be fatal. Now Jesus is saying, guys, you know that story? You've heard it, right? Jesus is telling these disciples that they walk. That's about me. That's me. That's the first prophecy. Of my birth and of the cross. I am that one who was born of a virgin, Mary. And that cross was me taking on the poison of sin upon myself as the enemy struck me. But I crushed, polarized, and destroyed the serpent of Satan himself. And then he goes on, he says, Well, not only that, but he says, uh, And the Lord said to the man, and this is what he might have told his disciples as he was. was Starting with uh, the Torah He says, and man He says, has now become Like one of us Okay, this is the Lord talking about How man has become like God Now it doesn't mean that God And man have the same character attributes, or essence, he's saying this They understand good and evil He says, that's what it says Knowing good and evil, let me put it this way When, when I had children that were small One of the things That I was looking forward to least is my kids knowing that the world is an evil place. You know? It broke my heart knowing that the, that the realization of people not being kind and loving and, and, and that people aren't always safe, and that there's mean and nasty, violent people out there, It broke my heart to know that the innocence that my daughter, uh, that my daughter's had for so many years would be lost. Possibly a broken heart, or somebody hurting them, or a realization. And so, to prepare them, I tried to tell them how bad it would be kidnapped or or taken, and, and to the point that I was giving them nightmares. And I remember some saying, "I can't sleep. i have just seen people take me away." Because I, uh, I would say, you know, because we grew up in a church culture that people always loved God. It was safe. They would go up to strangers, and I'm like, we had to get to the point. Hey, you know, people are out there. They will kill you. They will take you. They will rip you. Up Heart. They would cut you into pieces, and I'm like, I was like really laying on heavy, and you know, they're like getting scared and scared. And I tell you, they, they changed their mind, but I, I probably went overboard, I'm pretty sure. But but I was thinking, man, that having a conversation where you open your child's eyes to the knowledge of good and evil changes the person, and not usually for the better, changes for the worse. And see, that's what happened when they took that forbidden fruit, the knowledge of Good and evil was ignited in their life, in their heart, and like God, they understood now the consequences of pain and suffering. They knew what evil was, but look what He says: it says He, man or mankind, Adam must not be allowed to reach out of his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So they cast him out of the garden. Some you are like, "Well, that's kind of rude. That's kind of mean. Why would God not want them to live forever?" I'll tell you why. It's because it's his mercy. You see, the only way we're ever going to be free from the pain and suffering of evil is by leaving this life. See, some of you the name of Jesus, and you're a Christian, but you still feel the effects of pain. You still feel the effects, effects of suffering and evil, and people's poor choices and the destruction nature, uh, destructive nature of people around us. We, even though we are set free from sin, we're still feeling the effects of sin. And Jesus. He was saying at that moment, I don't want them to live forever in pain and suffering. I want them to be free from this pain of torment and self destructive nature of each other. And it was his mercy that kept them from eating that tree of life, lest they live forever in this torment state. Jesus spared them. And Jesus says, When you decided to do wrong, I was there. That was me. Years later, the disciples wrote down the story of Jesus, and they recorded it in what we call the Gospels, and they understood the signs, and and the longest living disciple shared this in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, now the word there for word is the word logos, which means the expression or the voice of God, so when God said, let there be light, when God said, let there be light, when God said, said and proclaimed that is actually the expression of God, is Jesus. And he says in that word, he says that word in the beginning was the word and the word, Jesus, was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Before Christmas, before he turned water to wine, before he healed anyone that was sick, before he went to the cross, Jesus has been eternally there. it says, through him, Jesus, all things were made. Nothing without him was made that has ever been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. See, Jesus is at creation, bringing life to men. He is the very light of God in the darkness. And he says, he was in the world, Jesus was, and though the world was made through him, through Jesus, the world did not recognize him. And he came to that which was His own. You see, Jesus was not just the vessel for God to create things. Jesus is God and we are His. We are His possessions. We belong to Him. The earth and the fullness thereof is the Lord's. It says, He came to His own, His own creation, but His own did not receive Him. Now listen to this part right here. Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right. To become children of God. Not just Jesus, but this is the Jesus that we must receive. This Jesus, who is the God of all eternity, the Father in the flesh. He says, this is the creator Jesus that you must receive to become a child of God. Verse 14, the word, the Logos, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. God's splendor and majesty, that is. The glory of the one and only. The one of a kind, never has been, never will be another. He says, we have seen him who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now, I want you to have to do a favor. If you have your Bible on your phone, I want you to pull up 1 John 1, 18. And I want you to compare it because what we're going to look at, we're going to get a word that shows up in the King James and the NIV, but it's actually a different word than what they translated it as. If you see the word in like the American Standard or the uh, English Standard or the Revised, you're going to find a literal translation that is a little bit different in uh, than the popular translation. It says this, no one has ever seen God. By the way, no one's ever seen God. Right? No one can see God in His essence and glory. No one has ever seen Him. It says, but there's one, but the one and only the translation you have might say "son," but the word there is "one and only Theos," which is the word God. If you look at some of the other translations, like the Revised English Standard and the uh, uh, American Standard, it actually has the word God there. So we read, "No one has ever seen God, but the one and only God, who is Himself God, and is in closest relationship with God the Father, has made Him known." Here's what he's saying. Jesus is God. He is the expression of fullness of God. No one will ever see God except one who is God himself. Jesus the Son. He is from the very essence of the bosom, the deepest part of who God is. That's where Jesus comes from. He is the Word of God, the expression of God, made manifest to those who will see his face. Him. You know? Jesus said, do you, do you realize you Jesus is not God Junior. He's not the Father's Bubba. He's not an associate of God. He's not God in training Jesus is God. He, is not just, he didn't just show up at creation or at Christmas. He's not an offspring of the Heavenly Father He's eternal God in the flesh. Apostle Paul said, says it this way in Colossians By the way, read Colossians 1 and 2. The whole two chapters really summarize this. But this is what he says in verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image the word? There's icon. That means it's the actual physical presence. And you guys have an icon on your desktop computers, right? On your computers, you have an icon or on your app, you have you have an app and you have icons, you know, widgets or whatever. And when you hit that, boom, it goes to the goes to the application, right? And that, that program is not really on your desktop, y'all. It's it's inside the computer, and when you hit that icon. Boom, it opens up, shows you everything about the computer. It opens that computer. Jesus is the icon. And you click Jesus, you get the father. He is the way to the father. Boom, you click him. His body is just an expression, or a physical appearance leads you to the application, who is God. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the unseeable God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. This is not order of birth or order of creation. This is about rank in creation. That means above all creation, Jesus is first. Among everyone that's ever lived, Jesus is first. That's what it means. It's not about order of birth or order of rank. He says, for by him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers, or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and... For him, he didn't create anything for me. He created not create anything for you. I mean, he gave us life. He says here, enjoy and make something of it. But ultimately, everything he created, including you, was for him and for his use, for his glory. He created by him and for him. Verse seventeen: He is before all things, and in him, Jesus, all things hold together. Jesus asks, Do you know who I am? And then he asked, this, uh, do you know what I've done? Do you know what I've done? See, they were frustrated, and they were confused, and they were disappointed. I want you to write this down, it's not how you know To be disappointed in God is to be clueless about what he did. I think it's interesting that their eyes opened up when they remembered what he did. Jesus was revealing the Old Testament and their hearts were on fire, but at that moment, when they broke that bread and they remembered that moment when Jesus was there with them their eyes were open that Jesus had been there with them all the time sometimes we forget what he's done for us and where he has taken us and what he's walked us through and when we feel like God is not there and Jesus is far away we just need to look back to when he was there And he is still there and he's still present sometimes we forget that we don't realize what he has done And to be disappointed with God is to be clueless about what he did. See they were frustrated that he died and that he was put on a cross And he's like you don't understand what I have done. You don't understand this was my mission all along He possibly quoted them Isaiah 53 one of the most popular verses uh, in the Old Testament about Jesus, he says in verse three, he says, "He, the Messiah, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows." Now this is Old Testament, thousands of years, about a thousand years before Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and he was esteemed, and they esteemed him not. That means they looked down on him, they mocked him, they belittled him. They thought that he had lost. It was a sad story. Surely, verse 4, he took our burdens and he carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him, we thought he was stricken by God, abandoned, forsaken, belittled. That somehow he had lost. That God had smitten him and afflicted him. But it says instead, what really happened, our perception of what happened was wrong. Because this was part of the plan. But instead he was pierced. Intentionally and on purpose for our transgressions. He was crushed on purpose for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him on purpose by his wounds. We are healed. This was part of the plan. Jesus is like, do you have any clue why I was here? Do you realize what I came here to do? That verse in Isaiah was about me. Zechariah 12 10 says something similar. It says, says, They took and they looked on me, the, the Messiah, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one who grieves for a firstborn son. He says, That's me. This story is about me. There are 324 prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. I should say of the Messiah. And they tell him the birthplace of the Messiah, the life, the actions, the details of his death, the mission of his uh, to conquer sin. And a thousand years before it ever happened, when those words were given, all of them were amazed and fulfilled in perfect detail in Jesus. Jesus says, Hey guys, that's me. That's what I'm here for. Luke 24, 25, he said to those disciples, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did the Christ, the anointed one the Messiah, have to suffer these things? He said, didn't he have to? And then enter into the glory? He said, this is what it was all about. He said, that was me. This is about me. They were all leading up to, pointing to, this preview of this moment of this day. I was there eternally before in creation. This is my work. I'm the present father in the flesh. I came as a substitute for your sin to make you a child of mine. Do you realize what I've done See, the problem is that some of you're disappointed because you have a small Jesus. Your life didn't turn out as you thought. Then things didn't pan out as you had planned. Your job didn't surface the way that you had hoped. Your family didn't quite turn around and get fixed in the way that you prayed. Your feelings were hurt. Jesus, you're thinking, man, where have you been? Why aren't you here? Jesus said, you know what? I'm not just here for 30 years. I'm not just here for 50 years or 80 years. I'm here for eternity. My plan is bigger than your life and bigger than you can imagine. Why are you thinking so small? Luke 24 it says, In the beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them all the scriptures were saying concerning him. I want to give you one more glimpse, preview, trailer of Jesus in the Old Testament. We're going to pray today. And by the way, uh, there's communities open today. If after this picture of Jesus, you want to take communion, there's some uh, elements. I would encourage you to do that. It's open every Sunday for you to remember this story. In Exodus, Moses writes, it's one of the greatest light bulb moments in the Bible, an amazing coming attraction. Here's the background: the Hebrews, who went on to become the descendants that brought us. Jesus the Messiah, they had been taken as captives and slaves in Egypt. God sent Moses and he said, let them go. And they were said, no. So God used Moses to bring a series of really weird, strange, crazy plagues. Maybe you see the Ten Commandments, or Prince of Egypt, or some other Moses story. And these plagues are described in the Bible. Well, the last one is a doozy. And it says that the death of the oldest son, in every family, household, in stock, or in, in a, a group of animals will all die. oldest son, every offspring will die. Now, is there any firstborn sons here in the room? Okay. Firstborn sons, all right? This was the play. You're going to die. <laughs> Unless you do this. This was if you lived back in the time of uh, this. Great Exodus. Exodus 12, 3 says uh, the plagues hardening of the heart of Pharaoh, finally no more plague. he says this, till the whole kingdom of Israel, that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to stick a lamb for his family, one for each household. Now this right has nice to be without defect. That means no crooked teeth, no off-color, no limp in the leg. Must be perfect in proportion. It must be a spotless and perfect lamb. He says, pick the one that's in perfect health, and I want you to bring it into your house. I want to live with you for a month. This animal lived in their house. Traditionally, uh, the Passover, they would bring these animals in, and they would actually live in the house as a pet. They would love, you know, this is so you just got a new puppy, you know? And you're like, man, I love this animal, I love this pet. So cute, so adorable. You know, it's like, oh, it's like part of the family. You're, you're treating it like a human being. It's not, it's a dog. But we do that anyhow with our cats and our animals. Funny, we don't do that with goldfish, but, or babies, but we do with our animals that lick our face. And so, for whatever reason, they brought this land and as God said, and they, they begin to love this animal. And that was the point. They begin to treat it. Like it was part of their family, and then they were commanded to kill. Verse 7 says, Then they were to take some of the blood from this animal and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses in which, uh, and where they eat the lamb. So they were to take this lamb, they were to kill it, they were to take the blood, put the blood on the top of the door, and on the sides of the door. And then they were specifically to cook. Barbecue the lamb; they were not allowed to boil the lamb, and they were supposed to eat every single part of it. They had eaten the head, and the legs, the insides, everything about it. And if they were stuffed and couldn't eat any meat, anything more, they would burn the rest of it to dust. They were also to serve it with unleavened bread, bread that did not have yeast in it. By the way, yeast is a picture of sin. So to eat this bread, and so there's all these pictures that are already being painted. These are the instructions of God, and He says, and then wait because I'm coming. So I want you to take this lamb. I want you to grow close to it. I want you to love it. I want you to, to treat it like family, and then I want you to cut its throat, and I want you to pour its blood out on your doors and on your um, on the frame of your door and on the doorpost, and then I want you to, uh, to, to barbecue it. I want you to eat every bit of it that same night all must be done in the same night he says on the same night i will pass through egypt now it's important to know that this this spirit that's about to come through and take out all of the oldest sons was not demonic it was not the devil it was not satan it was not you know jesus you know or god contracting the devil out for the day. Hey, you know, it's not, this is not a background of the devil. It's the devil. want to come in here and take some life. No, he says, I will do this. See, this is a picture of justice and God. This is a mirror of what is to come one day when this life is over. He says, I will pass through Egypt, the spirit of God will, and I will spread down every firstborn, both men and animals. So every goat, every cow, every lamb, everything that's left in their livestock, uh, all of their pets, anything that is an animal in the firstborn Will all die And I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt Proving their fault Because he says, I am the Lord He says, and this blood On the door Will be a sign For you on the houses where you are And when I see the blood I will pass over you And no destructive plague Will touch you When I strike judgment And in 1446 B.C., the Hebrews were released from Egypt. They were set free from slavery. And Jesus says, remember that story, guys? You remember that story as he's talking to those disciples? He goes, everybody knows that story. That's one of the greatest stories of their entire heritage. In fact, that meal, that last supper of Jesus was during the holiday, known as Passover, where they celebrate that night where the angel of the Lord Passed over because of the blood of the lamb, and so they were having that Passover meal. And then at night, Jesus said, "Hey, this meal—it's about me." And he says, "Hey, you know that that night, guys, when we broke bread, that's why I said this, body, this bread is now my body broken for you, and this, this blood is now my blood shed for you, poured out for your sins." He says, "Guess what? That's about me. This story is about me. I am the lamb. I set Egypt free from slavery." And I can set you free from the slavery of sin today through the blood of the Lamb. You apply the blood of the Lamb to the door of your heart. And when you, see, they would eat all of that, thing. You see, just a piece of Jesus saying, no, I'll just take a leg please. I'll just take a thigh. Wipe me on, please. No, Jesus, you've got to eat it all. A piece of me, a part of me in your life is not enough. You must consume all of me. You must receive all of who I am. And that blood must be on your heart and your life. The devastation of that relationship, that mourning for our sin must be recognized. He says, remember when we sat down that night? That meal was about me. See, the New Testament again and again calls Jesus the Lamb of God. And Jesus was saying, no more lambs. I've come to take away sin once more. First Corinthians 5 7 says Get rid of the old yeast That's our old sinful habits That you may be a new batch Without yeast That means someone living without sin Or apart from sin as you really are Or designed and created you For Christ, our Passover lamb Has been sacrificed Jesus did He is the bread, he is the lamb He is the glory, he is the blood These were coming attractions to, to the main event So today Those three questions that he asked them lead us to three questions we must ask ourselves. These are three questions I want to pray for you. Number one, who is your Jesus? If I were to ask you to describe Jesus right now, how far back would you go? Would you go to that final graph in Sunday school? Would you go to his birth, the miracles? Would you talk about that wee little man who stood up in a tree and Jesus said, Hey, come down, I'm going to your house today. Would you talk about his teachings? Would you talk about the cross? Or to point to the resurrection All that is still just too small On that road that day He was telling me Do you think I'm just a man who lived 33 years Just a good teacher properly and loved people No man I'm more than God's separate. I'm more than just a little bit better than the angel I am the alpha and omega The everlasting, the everlasting The sustainer of life, the giver of life The greater of all things I am the king of all I am the lord of all Do you know who I am So who is your Jesus second question you need to ask yourself is how big is your Jesus? For many, Jesus is just a great example of how we should live. He's just a spiritual consultant, a moral guide, an influential person, but he is not. He's more than that. He is God of all. He's the author of all. He is to be feared. and He is to be loved, who is able to do all things who cannot be stopped. And he's big enough to cover the weight of all of your sin, shame, shame. How big is your Jesus? The third question is, where is your Jesus? Is he an image on your dashboard? Is he a sticker on your bumper? Is he a picture in a child's Bible? Is he a bobblehead or a tattoo? Is he a necklace or just some earring? Is he an answer in a trivia book or simply a figure in a historical book? Or is he the center of all of your life, the compass of your path? Does he sit on the throne of your heart ruling and reign. Earlier that day, the main attraction happened. The tomb was empty. Jesus had conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave and the previews opened their eyes. In verse 33 it says, they got up and at once uh, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. I want you to write this on this last thought. A true encounter with Jesus changes our direction. When you meet the real Jesus, your life is never the same again. Those sightings and those previews expanded their vision. Their eyes were open. And that slow, sad, seven mile walk became a joy-filled sprint back. The next few weeks, get ready, buckle up. We're gonna ride through some of the greatest coming attractions in the Bible. And hopefully, give you some light bulb moments. See, those disciples at first were disappointed and let down. Are you disappointed? About something that maybe God didn't do in your life. Maybe the sprint you need to take is the 18 inches from your head to your heart. Like those disciples, they didn't realize Jesus was there all along. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are a big, wonderful, gracious, patient, merciful, powerful God who is able to redeem restore, refresh, correct. God, I pray if there's anyone here that has never acknowledged who you are in their life, and maybe uh, to them you're just a person in history, God, I pray that today their eyes are open to the majesty of who you are. And we sing out and declare the name of Jesus. We're speaking calling out the very intimate name that God gave to us for us to know God thank you that you are the forgiver of Through the cross of Christ, we can be made brand Heads bowed and eyes closed for a moment. Where are you when you walk with Jesus? Maybe you need to know that He is close in your life. Maybe you're going through a discouraging season of disappointment, maybe confusion, and you need to know that Jesus is here with you. I tell you, He's here with those that are His. Are you a child of God? Have you bowed the knee to Jesus Christ? Is he sitting on the heart and throne of your life and your heart? If he is, then he is with you. But if he's not, he can be with you. So I'm going to pray two prayers. The first prayer, I'm going to ask you if you'd like to say yes to Jesus and make him the Lord of your life. I'm going to invite you just to, to pray uh, between you and the Lord uh, a prayer of submission to God. Just right where you are. I'm not going to leave you to words. Just, just right there where you are. Just talk. Jesus, Jesus, here's my life. Just tell him, here's my life. I know who you are. Forgive me of my sin. Tell him. Forgive me of my sin. Wash me. I want to know who you are. Using your own words, just call out to you. Thank you, God, for giving me my sin. Tell him, God, thank you for loving me and making me your son and your daughter. Thank you, God, through the cross I can. Now, for those of you that are here that even know that He is with you, if you are separated out of God, He has never left you. He is with you even when the road seems long and slow and disappointing. He is with you, walking right next to you, helping you to understand your meetings, just like those disciples. God, we comfort those who are.